Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Trade Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, urban farmer, and permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Callie Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. St. Your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of bin gay, stale coffee, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done, except for this week. And I pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully with any luck, education. And if you enjoyed this podcast, now's the time. I got to ask you every week, folks. So go ahead and like it if it's on SoundCloud. If you haven't already, uh, rate and review on iTunes. That's really where it really helps. And subscribe. And folks, share it across social media. All right. So make sure, media mogul. Yeah, Mark. Make sure to do all that. So if you haven't already, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess and go to Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess and youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. Legal disclaimer in no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, did you contact a lawyer, an attorney, and or other licensed professionals? Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Now, let's get right into the meat of this. So this week, it's just going to be me. This is an experimental podcast. I have a guest that I want to bring on, and I asked him what he wanted to do, and he wanted to do a live podcast and answer questions live. So I figure, you know what, let's try it out. Let's experiment. Let's see if it works before I take the time and, and have him on to do it. So first I'm going to do a podcast update for those paying attention. You'll notice a lot more podcasts. All right. So uh, part of the deal I'm making with you guys is we want to grow it from, I think when I started, this it was 500 weekly listeners, but now we're up to about 750 weekly listeners. We want to grow in the next 11 months to 5,000 weekly listeners, right? And the deal I'm making with you guys is um, I will double the amount of content I put out and you guys need to share it. You need to rate and review it on iTunes and put it all across social media and all that. Um, hey, Gary, how's it going? Um, that's, that's, that's a bargain, right? So I'm not getting paid to do this. I added up all my hours last year for the podcast and actually I didn't expect a podcast to take off. It's one of those strange things. I thought after a year I'd be, I'd be stopping and I wouldn't do it anymore. And I wouldn't have be burdened with a speaker. Um, for those who don't know, Renegade Detroit investor used to have a speaker at the meeting and that was a total pain in the ass. And I think everybody likes the new format better when you come to the RDI meeting. And the way I got away from the speaker was starting the podcast. So, but it turns out the podcast took off. So we're going to do more of that. And you guys are going to help me out. So here are the schedule. Here's the schedule for the Renegade Detroit investor podcast. The schedule is Mondays is the Borland Group podcast, Real Deals, Real Returns, right? And that podcast is going to be a short podcast, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. And that's where we break down one of the deals uh, that the Borland Group has done. And that's Dylan Borland and uh, David Tupin over there at the Borland Group, the Borland Group LLC.com. Uh, Check them out. 
worth it. So, and they're going to, so that how that one works is they're going to say where they got the lead from. They're going to recount how they talk the seller into it, how they set the appointment, the work it needs, all negotiations, what they did to it, whether they wholesaled it, whether they flipped it, um, how they did it and walk you through and what and how much money they made on the deal. Right. So that's kind of a cool format. Tuesdays, I'm pretty excited about. Everybody remember when Steve was doing Flip This, his podcast, and he kind of starts and stops and it's really good shit, but um, just has a hard time getting it out. So I approached him like, hey, man, how about I help you? I could put it on the Renegade Detroit Investor Network, and then we can get Steve's podcast back. So he did that, and we released the first one yesterday, and it's fucking awesome. It's a great podcast. It's Flip This Podcast. It's with Steve Lundell. We have a new format. It's a great format. Uh, Steve's awesome. It sounds great. First thing we do is we start selling deals right off the bat. So if you just like hearing... Um, I would say good to excellent salesmen sell deals. That's fine. If you're interested in deals, definitely do that. So we, we start with, um, some deals that, uh, you know, that we're selling, you know, we go, we walk through all that information and then we move on to the, the, the next segment, which is what's working and what's not working where Steve talks about some successes he have in his business. And he talks about some failures he's having in his business. It's fucking cool, man. And he's just down dirty honest. It's a, it's a real raw look at wholesaling and the business of wholesaling. If that's something you're interested in, then moves on to a funny story. Every week we're going to do some sort of funny story or maybe a story piss off or a Steve rant, whatever. Be a little section for a story that week, which I think is awesome. Then he wraps it up with wholesale tip of the week. So that's the format on that. And those are averaging about anywhere from 35 minutes to an hour. And that's awesome. Then Wednesday, of course, is going to be the regular Renegade Detroit Investor podcast where I sit down, except this week we're doing an experimental podcast. But we would normally um, sit down and just interview a guest and talk about their story and how they got started and all that. And that's going to be on Wednesdays. Thursdays is Story Time with Jeff. And this is a podcast with Jeff Rabinowitz. Um, and this, this, I'm having a lot of fun with this one. This one's a little bit more out there, but it seems to be very popular and numbers are going really good, really well. So Jeff introduced his special guest, which is a kind of bourbon or whiskey or scotch. He knows all those terms. I don't. And he talks about, he introduces that he's really into this stuff. Tells you, tells you where he got it. He, he tastes it. He drinks it. I just sniff cause I don't drink, but it's really fun. And then he tells a story. And Jeff's pretty good with stories. So um, I don't want to give away, but we, we have some good ones. Go back and watch. We have, um, let's see, two live. We're releasing the third one. I think we're doing a soft release tonight and a hard release tomorrow. So, And those are averaging about an hour. So basically, all these podcasts are going to be way shorter than my um, two to four hour podcast that I do on Wednesdays. So and that's going to be on Thursday, Storytime with Jeff. And Friday, we haven't done one yet, but we start this Friday. It's going to be a commercial real estate podcast with David Brooks from Keller Williams Commercial. And I'll be joining him and we're going to be working together and we're going to call, or he has it, um, Detroit Real Estate Advisors, right? And we're going to work the Woodward Corridor and every week we're going to sit down in some place. Uh, it's going to be live. We're going to record in a restaurant. We're going to do, Hey Paul, how's it going, man? 
um, or recording a restaurant or a local business. We'll introduce you to the business owner. We'll talk about a deal available currently, um, probably somewhere along the Woodward Corridor, but if not, the history of it, um, everything about it. And then we'll move into some news and some information about Detroit or nationally that affects commercial um, real estate. And then we'll wrap it up with any other additional information at the end. And that's going to be released on Fridays. That's going to be recorded um, live at the location. I think that's going to be really cool. It's going to be uh, basically we're going to we're going to be hosting a different spot just about every single time. So something for everyone. Of course, I'm still going to record the Renegade Detroit Investor Meetings, and I'm still going to record the Borland Group um, meetings, and that's the first Saturday of the month. So if you're interested, folks, go to meetup.com and search the Borland Group LLC and or search Renegade Detroit Investors. If you go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors right there. If you want to attend any of those meetings, you can go there or just search the Borland Group or go to Facebook too as well. And you can do it there. So basically, um, and they have uh, basically what it is is we're going to have a podcast dropping for every day of the week, Monday through Friday. What do I need you guys to do? First of all, the ones you really like, make sure you listen to them. Make sure to rate and review on iTunes. Make sure to um, share across social media. This is part of the arrangement I'm making. So if um, I'm going to have to to uh, monetize this at some point in time, just to give you an idea. Last year, I added up all the time I did the podcast, and it's basically, um, if I worked a 40-hour-a-week job, I took a month off to do the podcast. So, now I'm not complaining. It was a good thing I did that. I think it's it's been good for me. It's been good for my career. It's been good for my guests who have come on. But obviously, um, I can't take a month off per year, every year, forever, to do the podcast and not get paid to do it. So um, we're going to have to monetize it some way, which means we need more numbers, right? Which is the deal I made before. So I'm going to double the amount of content I put out and you guys are going to share, 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 rate and review on iTunes, all that. And at the end of uh, the year, we're going to see how close we are to 5,000 weekly listeners and see if this thing will go on. So that is the update for the podcast. So, um, also for those who don't know next month's renegade Detroit investor meeting, that would be the November meeting is not going to be at always brewing Detroit. It is going to be at shields pizza and that's in Southfield, Michigan. And that's at 10 mile and telegraph. So, uh, it's not going to be at always brewing Detroit next month. Um, so for November, we're going to be at shields. So, and I'm going to update that in the Facebook. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club, or if you go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors, it'll be there. The information will be there. But just if you don't, you know, if you just show up on autopilot, I don't want you showing up there because you won't be able to get in. So, all right, on to questions. So far, I don't have any questions. So, folks, if you have some questions, now would be the time to type them up. Arrgh. We're going to move into Ask Me Anything. So, all right, let me scoot that back a little bit. All right, so I did get one question earlier. Well, everybody else, and while you're you're listening, Ask Me Anything. It'd be about real estate, wholesaling, realtor listing stuff, um, fix and flip, whatever questions you have. So this is a test. 
if we can pull this off, maybe you can have um, the guest I want to have on and do it. So I did get a question earlier today from Mr. David Gittens, um, who unfortunately would be busy at one, but he would like to know what is the best way to build a buyer's list for properties that are not in your target area? Thanks. All right. So basically, I don't know about the target area besides geography, um, but here, let, let's. So how do you grow a buyer's list, right? First of all, get a good URL. So Steve has 313cashdeals.com. Um, Ron Walraven and Jesse Boyd. We have webuyroi.com. Um, I can't remember what Mike and Mike's is. Sorry, guys. Giving you a free plug, and I can't remember can't remember what it is. But but the point is, you want an easy to remember URL. You can put it at the bottom of your email. You put it um, on all your social media sites, and it's a it would be a, what you call a squeeze page, a one page place where somebody can go, and it's a video of you talking about the deals you're going to be selling. It's a video of, or it's maybe just words. It's like, hey, if you're looking for single family homes in Oakland County, this is a place to go. Generally, the more specific, the better. Um, to an example, like uh, DetroitInvestmentDeals.com is better than MichiganInvestmentDeals.com if all the deals you're doing is in, you know, if they're if they are all in Detroit, right? You don't want to do Michigan investment deals and then everything, you know, everything is in one particular city. I buy mihomes.com. Thank you, Ron. It's we buy ROI. Is that the other one? Shit. I buy mihomes.com. Sorry, I, I got that wrong, folks. That is the um, the page for, for Ron and Jesse. If Anyway, so you need a squeeze page, a one page, either with some video or all that. And the idea is to get at least an email address and or I would say get a phone number to. And now there's lots of things you can do to direct people, right? So you can sign up your page at like Investor Carrot or whatever, or you can hire somebody to do search engine optimization. Ah, Mike Squared is we buy ROI. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate that. Ron, while we're even bailing me out. So Steve's is 313cashdeals.com. Ron and Jesse is ibuymihomes.com. And Mike Squared is we buy ROI.com. So go check out those pages first to see how to do um, a page, right? So generally one page is fine. And it can even just be a page on um, your website that your your unique URL forwards to. So, and it's, it's a selling proposition, right? So what you want to do is get this investor to give up at least their email address. And I would say a phone number, nothing's more powerful than calling someone to sell a home as well. And I would say definitely if you're paying for traffic to go to your site, and it's not just organic, Organic meaning um, it's just in the bottom of your email or it's on your business card or it's on your Facebook account or Instagram and they just find it, then click through. I think for that, an email address is fine. But if you're going to pay like Google pay-per-click or do some sort of Facebook advertising or really anytime you're going to like if you're going to spend a lot of money like on Investor Carrot, something like that, um, definitely uh, – I think go for the phone number. A phone number is more valuable, um, in my personal opinion, right? So that's one way. You have a squeeze page. Um, another way is just to actively post what you're doing on social media, right? So if you're a wholesaler, which I am, and you're going about doing wholesale-like things, try and do a few posts a day. No problem, Ron. Glad. Uh, thanks for bailing me out, and thanks for <laughs> – I was starting to look stupid there, so I appreciate your help. Um so 
man, I lost my train of thought. It's hard to do this live at the same time without a little, without a little bit of help. So, um, anyway, so post what you do, post on social media, what you're doing, right? Like I take a picture, like if I see old knob and tube, I take a picture of old knob and tube electrical. If I see an old furnace, I take a picture of that. If I see a cold house, I take a picture of that. Just reminding people that yes, I do wholesale and I don't deal with buyers too much, but if most wholesalers do, um, put a link in there too. do all that. So that, that would be another, um, great way to, to find some buyers, something I've never done, but I know, uh, Mike square does. I know Steve does sometimes. I know captain Micah Calper, that would be uh, Mike squared's father bandit science. So every time he gets a deal under contract, he takes, I think he takes 10 or 20 bandit signs. Those are the yellow signs that you see along the side of the road, either stuck in the ground or maybe nailed to a, a fence post or not fence post, like a telephone pole or something like that. Um, disclaimer, be careful. A lot of cities have rules about this. Yada, yada, be an adult, look at an attorney. Anyway, um, every time he puts a house under contract, he goes up and put 10 or 20 of these with his phone number and then he adds them to his buyer's list. And he posted on another post that half his buyers come from these signs. So probably makes sense to put them up. I don't do it because I don't deal with buyers, but it sounds like it would be a good um, standard operating procedure. Folks, he's, if half his properties are going um, to find a buyer from those bandit signs, finding buyers, that's a big deal. So that, that'd be a way to grow your um, list. So let's say to answer David's question, he puts a property under contract in Pontiac, which would not be his normal market. One of the things you may want to do is put 20 bandit signs up around the house saying, hey, you know, uh, what do you call it? Handyman special, three bedroom, one bath or whatever it is. Um, sell cheap, call whatever number. I maybe go to Captain Micah's page on Facebook and check out what he did. He took some pictures and posted it to um, Tom and Aaron's page at Metro Detroit um, Real Estate Investors. Go Go check that out. Um, they posted their, they posted a picture there of, of some bandit signs, right? So that's another way you can start, um, you can start looking for buyers. Then there's, um, you can do like reverse prospecting, right? So if you have access to the MLS, um, and, or like, uh, I know some people have access to, uh, a bunch of information either through title companies and what you want to look for is pull all the sold properties in the last year or maybe last 90 days would be, be better, but start with a year and see and see it is. And all the ones that have sold near your house and pick the ones as close that would match your house as possible. Figure out who that is. Look it up on public records who bought it. And then you can either Google them and or if you have, which I do, if you have some sort of skip trace software you can use, you can sign up for accounts like TransUnion, TransUnion has one. Um, I'm sure they all have one. You can go through a title company too where you can you can do skip trace, right? So if you Google them and try and find out who they are, you're just looking for a phone number, right? And it doesn't cost that much. So my skip trace, I think, charges me a buck a file to get a phone number. So I find out who is actively buying in the neighborhood around the house, figure out who that company is, Google it, see if I can't find a person, find a number, do a skip trace if I have to. I always Google first and then get a number and say, Hey, I saw you bought the property, um, five houses down from mine, um, four months ago. I just 
Thought I'd let you know I have a property. I'm a wholesaler. I have a property under contract for four or five houses up the street from here. I just want to see if you'd be interested in buying it. Oh, no, I'm not interested. Well, yeah, would you like to be on my buyer's list? Yeah. What's your email address? Add them, add them to your um Add them to your buyer's list. So also, if you want to grow your buyer's list, one of my favorite ways to do it, you guys know I love networking. I try to go to as many meetings as I can, at least two a month. Um, sometimes I get to three or four, and not necessarily just real estate investing meetings, but I think that's a great place to start if you're building a wholesaler's list. And just tell everybody you're a wholesaler. Hey, would you like to be added to my list? Give me a card. Hey, would you like to be added to my list? Where are you buying? You know, I always write the notes on the card. So I go, where are you looking for? Okay. And I see where I met them, like Oakland, Rhea, Renegade Joint Investors, Metro Detroit, whatever. I write on the back of the card and I write what they're looking for. And then you can put them in a database or you can just enter their email address into your, your email, their email address into your, into your email, like a Weber or uh, no, I think Investor Carrot has one, MailChimp, whatever your email blast service is you would use. You can do that. And if you get the phone numbers too, you can do that with text, which is really cool. So um looks like Brian's being very proactive. Add me to your list. There you go. Send me a deal, 55 at gmail.com. So there you go, Brian. Um, that's that's another way you you can find some buyers. So we went over creating a, a URL and doing search engine optimization putting in your email, all that, trying to just actively add people to your list, um, put up some bandit signs, do some networking. Um, you can also do some reverse prospecting using the MLS and some sort of skip trace to find people who have bought houses around yours. And I think that's about all I can think of. Let me read the question, but I would like to know what is the best way to build a buyer's list for properties that are not in your target area. You could also, if you have some money, this is way out. This would be out in the far, far right field. If you like sports analogies, you can do a direct mail campaign. I have never done this, but I know people who have, and some have had good success and some haven't, where you can pull a quick claim deed list. You can, this is something you can use from the MLS too. And a quick claim deed list is you would pull a list where people are deeding the property from their name into an LLC. So they're more likely to be a sophisticated investor. That means they're more likely to be buying more than one property and direct mail is a little bit more expensive, but you can send them a postcard to everybody on that list a couple times a year and encourage them to go to like, let's say 313cashdeals.com. We buy ROI.com or God, Ron, I forgot yours already. I buy mihomes.com. Thank you. So uh, that would be the most expensive way, but let's say you're like Mike Squared, you guys have a big marketing budget that could add a lot of people to your to your list. Now, postcards are expensive, right? So you figure forty cents a postcard if you can mail them a couple times a year, which your response rate is probably going to be somewhere between one and four percent. How many are actually going to sign up? You know, so that one definitely be a little bit more um, careful with. So. That's what I would do. So, all right, next question. For someone, this is from Justin Delk. Oh, no. Sorry. Oh, there we go. I thought I lost you get there. For someone who has, who has never done this, what is the first three steps they should do to start? And I think he's talking about wholesaling. 
That is a good question. Um, I think the first thing I would do is I put together a six-part, um, try and do this as humbly as I can. It's free, right? If you have some paid wholesale course, you certainly can. I did do a six-part um, wholesale course, and it's on iTunes, and it's on SoundCloud and Stitcher. It's easiest to listen to on SoundCloud because I put together a playlist where I walk through how to become a wholesaler, right? Now, it's not every everything, everything, because it's only six hours, but it's a lot. It'll get you started. And the first one is if you don't have any money. So the first episode is like you just barely have gas money to get back and forth between work. You're obviously going to have to approach it differently than if um, – if you had money, right, you're going to have to do a lot of hustle. You have to drive for dollars. You're going to have, you're going to, have to do a lot of things. If you don't have money, you got to put in a shit ton of sweat equity, right? That whole first episode is all about that. If you have money, you can skip the first episode and listen to episodes two through five, where we talk about direct mail, talking to sellers, how to get the contract, walking through the inspection, how to take the pictures, all the paperwork you need signed, all that. I would start with that. Listen to... um at least five parts, if not all six parts of that series. And if you go to soundcloud.com, you'll see it's a six part wholesaling series. So maybe somebody really cool and go to soundcloud and post it in the comments, or maybe I'll do it at the end. Right. So Justin, I would start with that. The second thing I would do is just start cheap. Start calling for sale by owners on Zillow, Craigslist, any for sale by owner, things like that. Um, you do need to be able to talk to lots of people and you you kind, of, you kind of have to be a little tough on the phone. Now, you're not tough to to the people you're talking to, but a lot of people don't want you calling them. They don't want to sell at a cheap price. They don't understand what the market is. Um, they don't want to do all sorts of things, right? So you just want to see if you can handle being on the phones, right? Get on the phones, talk to some people who don't like you, get yelled at, get told to fuck off and die. Um, that happens all the time. Um, be laughed at, not get, and you start getting a little practice too for free because you're only cold calling, right? You're not spending any money. Um, you get an idea of whether or not you can do this, whether or not you can handle it, and I would say do it more than once too. I would say do it for at least a month and see how you fare. So you could do some cold calling. Um, that would be a good place to start to see if you're a good fit for it. In this case, I know Justin would be a good fit for it. He's a he's a sales demon, man. He would be fine. So um, the third thing I would do is in the beginning, I would see if I couldn't find somebody you can um, mentor or partner or partner with uh, or just do a bunch of grunt work. Like when I started, I had never really done traditional wholesaling. I did a lot of buy, fix, flip. I did I did a lot of unrehabbed wholesaling too, but I still bought it. I mean, when I got started, it was at the very beginning, very before the REO crisis hit. But I started in 2006, lost everything in 2007, started again at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008. And I didn't really know what wholesaling was, but I was buying a ton of REO properties. And um, I was just buying them with a private money that I had and then going out and selling them. You know, So there wasn't an assignment, so it was costing me two sets of clothes and costs, all that. But anyway, I wouldn't have been able to sign it with a bank anyway. So I started with Steve. I really didn't know. So what I did was... Um, I looked at everybody who was in the market and this was almost three years ago or two and a half years ago. I did this and okay. How many, um, how many people there were? I narrowed down the list of four people and I like, all right, who can I, who do I think I can work with the best? 
And I hung out with him a little bit, talked to him a little bit, see how their processes went. And one of the things that impressed me about Steve was he had a CRM. He could show me how many calls he had to make to get a deal, um, all sorts of things. And I also got along, got along with him relatively well. And we do get along relatively well. So, um, And I just did a shit ton of grunt work from whatever he was doing, I was doing. Where are you going? I'm going. I didn't have anything else better to do. You know, I just got done with years of lawsuits, sitting on the couch. I didn't didn't even have a car at the time. You know, still waiting on a car. Didn't have a printer. He had to buy had to buy a printer and all that shit. And I didn't know anything what I was doing. So I just, where are you going? I'm driving with you in the car. I'm seeing how you. Well, you're making calls. I'm listening how you're making calls. Then I'm making calls. Oh, that's how you get a contract. Watch him get a contract a few times, and I went and got a contract. So, um, I think you can learn it on your own. But I think you will greatly speed up the process if you um, partner with someone, either with money. I think um, Mike Squared, they have some sort of partner program, too, where you can wholesale with them or whatever. I don't know all the details about that. You can reach out to them. I know Steve wouldn't mind um, some minions. I know I have some minions that I'm working with. It's it's good to have help, and it could be a good relationship where – they do think, you know, you can do things for them that they need done. Like I need video editing. So I'm trading video editing for mentorship and how to start a wholesaling business. Right. So that's one of the things I'm doing. I, you, you, you do something like that as well. And I'm going to throw in a fourth thing, a fourth step. Cause I think you need to, if you're going to sell to investors, you need to understand how investors think. And one of my favorite books for doing this is The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. No, I don't drink the Gary Keller Kool-Aid, but he does write some fucking kick-ass books. And that one is a great book. Ignore um, some of the the numbers in the book because it was written prior to 2006. And think about the principles. And the bottom line is you need to understand if you're going to sell to an investor – You need to understand how investors think, how they analyze deals, how they're growing portfolios, Um, whoever you're selling to. I think you need to understand how they make decisions or where they're rational, where they're rational, um, what kind of person they are. And I think that's a great book for figuring out how good investors think. And some of my best investors have been doing this for years and they're bigger, have more units every year, have more money every year. And it's quite obvious what they do. So. Justin, I hope that answers your question. Let's see who else does. How Joe Delia, how many hours till mastery? Um, that was right after his how much wood could a woodchuck chuck a woodchuck could chuck wood. Well, Joe, I'm glad you asked. That fucking woodchuck ate all my apples this year. So I have a woodchuck. I have an urban farm, about one acre urban farm. It's a hobby farm. And this woodchuck, we had a live and let live relationship until the very end of last year where he ate most of my apples, but at least left me some. Well, this year he ate all my apples. So that woodchuck, if I catch him, it's not chucking any more fucking wood. That thing is going to, I'm going to release nightmare on it. That's my dog. And that'll be the end of that fucking thing. So if I catch it. How many hours till mastery? Let's see. I worked. Now I had, so I started real estate investing in, well, really at the end of 2005, but didn't get really serious till 2006. It depends on, you know, I started investing in Detroit in 2006. Um, How long 
for mastery. So I started in, let's see, 2014. I think it was July of 2014 working for Steve wholesaling. And it took me about six months to become comfortable, I think, at it, where I could pick up the phone, set appointments, and go out on those appointments, and I would close a certain percentage of them. And it was relatively regular, where I could do that relatively regularly. So what is that, six six months? How many hours is that? Let's pull up my calculator here. So we'll say 50 hours a week times four times six. So I would say for me to get relatively comfortable with it, it was about 1,200 hours of work. I don't think I was really good at it, though, where I would start to measure myself against Steve, um, where I started getting about the same number of contracts. Not always. He usually still got more than me, but where there's a couple times I got more than him, where, where I started to close at, at close to the same rate as Steve. It was at about a year and a half. So that would be 18 months times 50 hours times 12. 12,000 hours. That's a lot of fucking hours. So, yeah. It takes time. It takes a lot of practice. Let me tell you how what really helped me. Um, I think I could have done it quicker, but I didn't really measure. I didn't track things. I didn't track my my progress, and I wasn't really diligent about it until after the first year. And I did notice there was an immediate benefit to um, to to tracking these things. So what I so what numbers did I track um, to answer this question? So I tracked um, calls going out. New prospecting calls specifically. Um, I didn't track any of the calls that I had to get done to either follow up on deals to get them closed or just new prospecting. I called it MPC. So I wrote I wrote on my little calendar MPC new prospecting calls. And my goal was to do twenty five of those a day. I didn't always hit it. In fact, most of the time I didn't. I would say probably only hit it half the time. But I tracked that. I tracked the number of appointments I set, and I tracked. Um, how many contracts I got signed, and then I tracked how many of those contracts got sold. So when I started doing that, one thing I noticed was I started setting better appointments. My follow-up got a lot better. So I set, that's right around the time when I set follow-up Friday, something I still do unless I'm flying or something like that, but it's something I still do every Friday where from 4.30 to 7.30, I just go through the database, and everybody I wrote an offer on, I call them. Everybody I thought I was close on, I call them. Even people I've already closed with, I call and see if they have other property. I call it follow-up Friday. When you start tracking things, you do you start becoming aware of it. Now, Joe Delia calls it the 15th protocol. I think he gets this from MAPS training from, and I never did this, and I need to implement this, and I still haven't implemented it. But it's a 15th protocol. It's a Keller Williams thing. Where you take, so you're doing all this tracking, right? So I'm tracking new prospecting calls, number of appointments I set, number of contracts I get, the number of closings I get, right? So I'm tracking all this. And what Joe's talking about with the 15th protocol is if by, if you tie that into your goals, so you're tracking these numbers to get to your goals. So the reason why you're tracking these numbers is okay. Like at the time when I was doing all this tracking, I know that I need to make 25 phone calls to set four to seven appointments of which one to three of them I would get a contract on. 
So then it's just a matter, okay, if I'm trying to get a contract a week and the 15th of the month comes and I have zero contracts or I need one contract, the 15th protocol would be what am I going to do extra to make sure to meet my goal of getting one contract a week? And that's from the, um, how was it? The millionaire real estate agent by Gary Keller. So I think I could have, it's a long winded answer to your question. 12,000 hours is about how long it took me. I think you do it a lot quicker if you're a lot smarter about it. I wasn't smart about it. Like I was getting back in the business. I, I, my mental health wasn't that good. I hadn't done anything for several years. Um, I have lots of dogs. I have a farm. I was distracted. I had lots of personal problems. I really just didn't do it as best I could. So I think you probably do it in half the time if you're really dedicated and you really track things. So you, you got to be committed to tracking things though. And I would say you would, for this, for this to work, um, this particular style to work, I think you need to tie it to some sort of goals too. Um, I think you can do it without doing that, but I think you're going to end up with similar results to me is if you're not going to track and you're not going to set goals, the, it's probably going to take longer, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Like, um, Jeff Rabinowitz has a thing where he doesn't like to plan and he doesn't like to track. He likes to be open to other opportunities. And I kind of do a hybrid model in between where I have goals and I do track, um, but not everything. And I leave some room, right? Like I'm not a slave to it, but I definitely don't ignore it either. I definitely pay attention. That's how I know when I'm sucking and when I'm not, you know? So anyway, hope that answers your question. Brian Zabowski, I am looking to present a possible investment opportunity to secure funding for a flip. What are some of the things from the investor side they want to see in the offer to show them I am serious and have done my research? Let me read this again. I'm looking to present a possible investment opportunity to secure funding for a flip. So I'm assuming this is a private lender. All right. So he wants to go after a private lender to get funding. Um. All right. So how do basically the question is, how do I secure um, private financing or maybe bank financing too for a deal you want to do? Well, first of all, that's a great question. I love this question. This is going to be a long winded answer, right? Begin with the end in mind. So I think a better way to ask that question, if you don't mind me rephrasing it, is how do I start developing the relationships I need to have access to private funding if and when I need it, right? I think you should be asking and borrowing money before you need it if you want it available when you need it, right? Think about this. If you have the money and you borrow it and you use it and you start developing these relationships, if and when you ever get to the point where you run out of your own money or you run out of all your private money, you need to go ask, you already have a relationship established where you've done what you say you're going to do. Now, to some people, this doesn't make any sense. They go, why would I pay when I have the money? And I, I, my argument to that is opportunity cost, right? So yes, you might pay more on this deal. Let's say you have the $100,000 in your bank account and you go out and you borrow 75 anyway to do a deal to establish a relationship with a new private investor, right? Somebody who's going to lend you money to do your deals. Um, I think that's a great idea. Now it's going to cost you more on this particular deal, Right. But the opportunity cost I'm talking about is in the future. At some point in the future, you won't have enough money or what if, and this will happen, um, there will be a market correction again at some point, right? Like every 12 to 14 years, there's some sort of market correction. Some are more severe than others, but every market correction is an opportunity, right? And even if you have $10 million, depending on where you're at, 
another market correction comes, you have another market opportunity. You can burn through that money really fast. You'd be surprised how fast you can you can burn you burn through money, especially if you start getting up to five, six, seven flips a month, like I was doing back in the day. Um, there were a few times I had ten plus going at one time, and even at Detroit numbers, you can chew through a lot of capital really fast. And there was tons of opportunity, even if I could do more, I couldn't. Right, I, I was barely managing that number of rehabs at the time. But let's say I had better systems in, in place. Right, let's say I'm Mike Squared. I know how to get shit done. I got systems everywhere. Right. You could run out of money really fast. So um, I would say start developing those relationships now. What do they want to see? This is variable. Um, so this is going to be a long-winded question, and it's going to cover a lot of different things. Uh, it's variable because not every private lender is the same. So in general, though, they're going to, first of all, they're going to want to see equity. There needs to be a significant amount of equity in the deal. So if you come with a 20% deal and it's your first deal, meaning um, um, 20% um, equity in the deal after rehab, that's going to be a little tight for for most investors, right? Most private lenders on your first deal. You're probably going to want like 30 to 35% equity after your rehab estimate. They're going to they're gonna want to see if your rehab estimate is accurate. Every private lender doesn't know. Like there's your grandma who doesn't know, right? She's like, oh... Brian, I'll, I'll lend you the money. And then there's someone like Jeff who does know, you know, and he maybe doesn't do rehabs, but after doing enough deals, he kind of knows what a rehab costs. So they're going to check your numbers and see if it's reasonable, not too low, not too high. Also some sort of contingency in there in case things go wrong. And I would say in general that you have multiple exit strategies, right? Something I really screwed up early on in my career was I only had one exit strategy. So when I first started, my main exit strategy was to buy with hard money and then sell to investors who they would then buy with hard money and season it, and then they would refinance out of that hard money, right? What's the problem with this? Well, when the market crashed and your appraisal goes from 120 to $20,000 pretty much in six months, which is exactly what happened in Detroit, um, when that happens and your only exit strategy involves a refinance from a bank, yeah, you, you got problems. And I did. I went out of business very fast because I only had one exit strategy. I didn't know what wholesaling was. I didn't know how to wholesale. I kind of stumbled across it at the end with one of the few properties I had left after I survived that ass whooping where I got my guts and tore out and left on the field. So having more than one exit strategy. So what are you going to do if it doesn't sell? Well, I plan to rent it and here's my credit and I would be able to refinance it. So the worst you would have to do is hold on to it for years. So let's say, you know, I couldn't sell it and well, rent, rent would be 1200 a month. Uh, so the return on investment, the cash on cash return at 1200 a month would be 11%. And um, at 11%, I would still, I would have no problem making a monthly payment to you for the interest rate. Um, and still cover taxes, insurance. Um, they're going to want to see some money in the bank. In fact, they're probably going to want you to put some of your money in the deal, right? So something that's very common, they'll put up the purchase price. Your private investor will put up the purchase price. And then um, you have to put, it, put up the rehab, right? So they're limiting their risk. So if you decide not to do what you say you're going to do, then they don't give you, they don't give you all the money up front, right? Now, after, after a while, um, I was always able to negotiate this away. 
you close five or six of them, you know, that's where the relationship thing comes in and it's not, not a big a deal. Um, I like to include comps and pitchers. So when I send something over, this is something I rant a lot about. If you're going to send somebody like, don't just send a text or an email. Hey, I'm looking to do this deal. Are you interested? I don't even understand why you're doing it. You're interrupting somebody's day to ask them to do something. And then you're not really providing any of the information they would need to make that decision. I think this is fine. in a like in a person to person community, like you bump into somebody, Hey, you know, I was thinking about you and I know you're, you're thinking about private lending. I got a project that might make sense to you. Do you mind if I send something over to you? I think that's fine. What I'm talking about is you're going to take the time to email somebody if they're interested why not send them all the information they need or as best you can, all the information they need to make the decision. So here's what I do. I haven't asked for private money in a long time and I don't know when I'm going to, but when I did, um, I would send them a link and it would have hundred plus pictures. I would send them a rehab estimate. Um, I also knew what the houses sold for. Now I didn't send comps because at the time I was making my own comps. There was nothing selling when I was doing most of my damage in the buy, fix, flip world, right? So I was kind of making my own comps. So in this case, I couldn't really send comps, but I could send other properties I sold and what prices they had sold for, which I did, right? At least, at least in the beginning. Um, also, I let them know I was renting them out. So my model at the time was to buy, fix, rent and flip and sell them turnkey. Right. So yeah, sorry, I'm breaking up. It's the Wi-Fi here sucks. I am recording this. So you guys will be able to listen to this on the podcast, um, later. So sorry about that guys. Can't help the Wi-Fi. It just, just kind of sucks about that. So anyway, so I would include pictures rehab estimate was being rented. What would it rent for? Um, what do I sell it for? What am I going to do? If it doesn't, and also I did, um, in the beginning, at least personally guarantee them. Um, I didn't do it forever, but I don't think there's anything wrong with personally guaranteeing a loan and the beginning to, um, earn trust, right? Also, I'd done a lot of these deals. So it was really easy credibility wise for me at this time. Um, it was easier for me to do because I could point back to 50 or 60 deals I'd done almost identically the same way. Might have even been a hundred at this time. It was quite a few. I had a, I had a, I had a track record I can point to, right? So like, look, even if I don't sell it, the rent's going to cover your interest. That was essentially what it is. Because who wants a property in Detroit, right? Um, if you're just just starting though, oh, close at a title company, have professional paperwork. Um, also, I got a compliment from almost every single private lender I use where they said my contract was very favorable to them. And that was something I never understood. So let me, let me talk about that. So, um, you say you want to be in a relationship with someone and then you send over a contract or an agreement and it's completely one-sided in your favor. I want you to think about what that says to somebody when you're like, I want to borrow your money that you spent a significant portion of your life saving. And oh, by the way, here's my contract that you send over an email. And I'm just metaphorically sliding across the table here. Um, And there's no advantage to you at all. And then you say something like, well, I'm open to negotiation. I know there's lots of different ways to do this. To me, I think you are sending the wrong message. Um, 
me personally, my approach to this is I want everybody to know this is exactly what I want to do. This is what I want to do. So I want to lead with my best foot forward. Do I want to send over a contract to a private lender where I have 15 outs and it looks like they would never get their money if it went wrong? Think about if you were lending the money and somebody sent you that contract, how would you feel about them? Especially, let's say you're good friends, right? Or a family member, a friend or a family member. How would you feel about that? I don't know. I, I couldn't do it. So now I wasn't stupid or anything like that where you get my firstborn or anything like that. But I think it was, if anything, it leaned a little bit more towards the private lender because my opinion was, and still is, even though there's been a long break and I'm still paying people back, um, I'm going to pay you the money back and I'm not looking for ways to get out of deals. I'm looking for ways to get into deals and I want access to private capital and I want you to know that I care about your risk and your concerns, right? And I think a good contract that leans towards, um, leans toward the private lender, not the borrower. So the lender instead of the borrower, I think sends the right message. You do definitely want to be careful who you do this with, right? You, if you do this with the wrong person, that could be a very expensive lesson, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying it's just the only way to do it, but think about it. Don't just listen to gurus Well, negotiate everything, get the best rate you can do all this, you know, don't personally guarantee anything. It's really easy to say after you've already been established, I don't think you should personally guarantee everything forever. Um, I don't think that's fair. That's why you're getting, especially if they're hard money rates, like anything above 10%, at some point, I'm just not going to personally guarantee it. If you want, at that point, if you want personal guarantee, we need to be talking about single digit interest rates, right? Because if I'm going to say you can come after my house, you can come after all my other, all, all the other stuff I own, which ain't shit right now, but eventually it's going to be a lot of stuff again, right? Uh, if you're going to come after the whole thing and you want me to sign away saying you can, if this project goes bad, there ain't no way we're doing this at 15%. I understand to start a relationship, I need to do this. I need to show you I'm serious. But once I've performed, I'm going to negotiate that away and or negotiate the interest rate down to a single digit number that makes more sense for, for money I can hold more long term. And if you're really starting out in the beginning, friends and family. That's where you have to go. Friends and family. If your friends and family won't give you money, you're not getting money from strangers. Period and report. If, if if your friends and in fact, that's another great rant. If your friends and family don't think you're worth the risk, you probably need to go back and work harder. It probably means you suck at your job. So if you haven't done something before, how somebody decides whether or not you're going to be good at something in the future is they look and see if you're good at things that you're doing now and or in the past, preferably now, right? Like, let's say, what's up, Dylan? How you doing, man? Dylan Born in the Borland Group. Uh, for instance, before I did this, I was a assistant manager at a bakery at Safeway, which is kind of like a Kroger out west, right? Um, I hated the job, but I had a really good boss. And um, anyway, I worked my ass off there. I can go back there and get hired right now. Anybody can call that bakery in Pullman, Washington, ask for Dell or the store manager. If, if they would remember me. And even when I annoyed them and all that, they would, they would want to hire me back. And you can go to, I think just about every job. Um, I would say every job, they would hire me back in a heartbeat. So if you're going to, um, 
borrow money from your friends and family and coworkers, and they all tell you no, you can, and I've had, I have some friends with a happiness before and they don't understand why. I think you need to turn immediately in on yourself. And maybe you need to get some outside help. Like maybe you're not accurately looking at yourself. Maybe you think you're better than you are. Um, if you're being lazy at work, if you're if you're not the person that your other coworkers and your boss turns to to get shit done at the last second, you probably need to be that person before you start borrowing money. That would be that would be my suggestion. You want to be the guy that everybody or gal. Sorry, I didn't come up with this language, folks. You you want to be the person, the person that everybody goes to to get shit done. That you're looking out for your team members. That you're looking out for the people you work. You're looking out for your boss. You're doing the best job you can. You're not just saying me, 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 my, my, my. You want to, you, that would be where I would look. And if you, if you don't think you are and you can't get private money, that's where I would start. It's probably, it's probably you. And for your first deal, make it good. Get the margins high. Make sure, because you haven't done a rehab before, you haven't flipped before, you're probably going to screw things up. You're probably not going to hit your timeline, right? So just, do the best you can. Don't be afraid not by not doing something. Make sure there's margins. Don't 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 be making your first deal something super tight, right? Like I'm going to do a twenty percent deal because the market's good. What if it's not good? What if it takes you eight months to get it on the market instead of four, and then the market changes? What if your rehab costs run over ten percent and you got all these tight margins? And next thing you know, you've lost money. A great way not to get money is to lose money on private with private lenders or lose money on things, right? Who's going to lend you money then? So um, that was a really long-winded way of asking the question. So what else we got here? All right, what do we got? Um, hard money loan, hard money loans, money for newbie. That's by Carlos. All right, so. This is a kind of a definition problem. Hard money, private money. I think what you're talking about is maybe institutional money. There's not much um, institutional hard money anymore. There's more than there used to be. Institutional hard money is going to be like a business. You're not talking. I mean, there there are individuals who operate like a business, but they're still individuals. I think what you're talking about is like a business of hard money. Like there used to be a lot more of it. Um, back in the day, and I think there's going to be more of it in the future too. Um, reach, just Google them. Reach out on the internet. They all have different um, things. Now, when I was borrowing private money, it was similar to what I was just talking about. Where where I started is not where I ended. All right. So, um, I did work with a lot of hard money at, at some point in time back in 2000, mostly 2006 and 2007. I did a little in 2008, but after that, it was mostly private. Um, where I started is not where I ended. So I did have to sign personal guarantees. I did have to add, bring some money to the table, but after we'd done a few deals, I negotiated those things away for most of them, not all of them. Um, things they looked at, they were concerned about my credit score. I actually had to get a credit partner at the time early in 2006 because my credit score kind of sucked. Um, at the time, cause I didn't, I didn't have credit, I didn't have a credit card, didn't have a fucking car payment. I didn't have anything like you could fit everything I owned and the back of a car, right? I didn't own shit, didn't need shit, you know. Spent most of my time traveling the world, living everywhere, living light, so I didn't have anything. So I had to get a credit partner. So my wife was a credit partner. She had excellent credit. 
we had to bring our own money to the, the first couple of deals. So um, we had to do that. They had expensive appraisals they want to order and they wanted to use their appraiser. This sucks sometimes, you know, they use their own, um, they, they force you to use a particular project manager that happens sometimes a guy named Chris for this particular one I'm thinking about um, where, and you had to pay him, right? So if you wanted to draw, so they, they wouldn't give you all the money. They pay for the house and then whatever money you had put in, whatever money they put in for the rehab, you want to make a draw on that rehab. They would send out their inspector who would, you had to do the work first and then their inspector would come out and verify the work was done. I think banks do it this way too. And then verify that the work was done before they released the draw. And then you had to go do more work to get it done. You, this also encouraged you to do less draws because I think they charged me 150 bucks a draw to send this guy out. So you don't want to send him out six times, right? I tried to do it in three times or less and it usually ended up being four. They also really, the appraisal, they made you use their appraisal person and pay for it. That kind of sucks. At least they all closed. I didn't have any that didn't close. So for newbies, they're going to look at the equity in the deal and they're going to look at you and they're probably going to make you sign a personal guarantee. If you have a shitty credit partner, they're going to they're looking for somebody where if you don't do what you say you're going to do, then go fuck up your life and take your shit and sell it and get their money back. That's what they're looking for. Somebody with assets, somebody who's collectible until you have a relationship with them. Yes, they will look at the asset, but I think what, what few people don't understand is most hard money lenders and private lenders don't want to take the fucking property back. They don't want it. Well, they're getting the property such a good deal. They are not in the house flipping business. They are not. They are in the money lending business. So um, think, try and just do your best to see it from their perspective. They don't want these houses back. They just want their interest rates. In fact, most of them are borrowing money at a lower interest rate, either from banks or private individuals, and they're just throwing points on and a higher interest on and collecting the spread in between. They're they're basically flipping financing. That is their business is flipping this financing and not, I want to take a house back and make more money. No, they, they usually lose money. They're not good at selling things or selling houses. Some of them are. I mean, there's an exception to every rule, but um, most of them. So get your credit in order. Get your tax returns in order. Hit up your friends and family first. If you can't get that done, go back and be a better employee, better husband, better wife, better friend, better son, better daughter, all that to the point where somebody would actually give you money and um, then start. So be prepared to sign some sort of personal guarantee. Be prepared to maybe get a credit partner. Be prepared to put your own money in the deal. So that's what um, to start for a newbie and a, a juicy deal. Not some weird two bed on a fucking crawl in Roseville, right? Like make it make it something that like, okay, there's lots of equity. It's not weird. It's a three bedroom. It has a basement, all that. So, all right, let's see what the next question is. All right, so I got Mr. Jeff Lipple here. It seems the hard money companies still want to see good credit and good income with you putting in a good amount of money and a track record of successful investments. So as Jeremy said, it will probably start with friends and family. Yes, I will agree with that. That has been my experience as well. In fact, I'd say it's worse now. Um, Carla says, thank you. You're welcome. I hope that answered your question. It's actually worse now. It was easier before um, the 2007, 2008 crash. At some point, they were literally just giving money away. 
It was crazy. Now they're they're far more conservative, and they probably should be. So um, that has been my experience as well, Jeff. So, hey, Cody, what's happening, man? So what we got? We got some other questions. What are good advantages to offer, and what is good compensation for a credit partner? That's a great question. So when I use credit partners, I don't know if this will work anymore. Um, The credit partner thing was when all you needed was good credit to get money, and then they just started giving money to everybody. So what I did was I offered them $5,000 to use for a credit partner, right? Now, this was for short-term stuff. I don't know about long-term stuff. So these were loans that were going to be 12 months or less, uh, buy, fix, flip. Most of them I retired in the four to six month um, time frame, somewhere right, average about four months, five months, six months on the long end. So, I'm like, hey, I'm going to use your, I'm going to use your credit to get X number of loans, and I'm going to give you what I did because I was doing them in Detroit. I think you could maybe be a little bit more conservative if you're like in Royal Oak. I had a hard sell, right? Detroit, no thanks. Um, your results, your mileage may vary. You're in a nicer city, right? Royal Oak, probably not as bad. Ferndale, Birmingham, they're, they're not going to be as demanding, but I would offer them five grand. And actually, let me go back and say, I don't, for credit partners, check with your lawyer. We didn't have this consumer financial protection, whatever this, you know, this baby state nanny bullshit that they want you to do where they spank you for, for, for being bad to people. Double check with your lawyer if you can do this. You may not be able to do this anymore where it's even legal to do this. So disclaimer there. I was just thinking about that. That might not be a good thing. But what I did when you could, and if you still could, was I just offered him a flat fee. Um, the reason I offered him a flat fee, I tried to get him to take a percentage of the deal. And everybody was concerned about, well, if you don't make any money, which is which is a valid concern, right? Like I'm going to go risk my credit. And if you don't make any money and you give me percentage of return, I get nothing. So um, that's where I went to a flat fee. So I was making on average 15 to 20 grand a flip. So I would give him five grand, which is expensive, but I couldn't get the money any other way. So I don't understand people who are like, the money's so expensive. If I can still make 15 to 20 grand, like, okay, so I make 15, so I make 10 to 15 grand. Would I, would you not pay five grand to make 10 to 15 grand? Fuck yeah, you would. So I don't understand these people that don't do these things, but it is expensive. And I would attempt to negotiate that down um, later. So for the credit partner. And also, um, or, and or do more than one, right? So that would be my recommendation. Uh, what about a newbie building credibility? I fucking love this question. Josh Smith. So what about a newbie building credibility? Where I can tell you somebody who's a newbie, and actually I don't even know if I can call him a newbie anymore. He was Jeff Lipple. What did he do? Well, he first of all, he put together... Um, a YouTube show that he does. He, he showed up to all, all, almost all the events. So he was known in the marketplace. He posted everywhere. He's a young guy. Um, still has a lot to learn, right? But he was active. He was humble. He asked people. Um, also, what a lot of people don't realize is I know for a fact he, he gives out gift cards. I would say rather generous ones too. How do I know? Is he just came in my office one day and he gave me and Joe some gift cards and just thanked us for all the things we'd helped him with. And we have helped him with some things. So it's really hard not to be taken seriously when you show up 
you're humble, you do what you say you're going to do, um, you don't expect things for free, um, and I think the great a great way to be known in the marketplace is to put together a some sort of weekly or daily video. I'm doing a lot, or I do more of it. Jeff Lipple has one he did. Back in the day, I did um, Detroit Investor TV. I sold 200 fucking houses off that shitty Detroit Investor TV. If you go back on youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers, you can watch those episodes. Um, you can tell I'm doing it. Sometimes I'm doing it at four o'clock in the morning. I'm smoking my pipe. I'm repeating myself. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was a particularly good series, but it was extremely effective because even though the production value was marginal at best to low, right? Um, people knew I was active. They knew I was selling houses. I do video walkthroughs and post it to the channel, right? Um, I'd write blogs. So I, I would say if you're not already like Mark, um, Mark Tomes, he has a, he has a blog. I love reading his blog. He just, he tries to do it every day. Get back on that shit, man. Um, and he's, he's just telling people what he's doing. He's telling people what he's doing. Also, I think posting pictures to social media and, oh my God, don't do any of this prosperity Christian bullshit or hashtag such and such empire. I, your fucking 10 Detroit houses is not an empire. All right. Your 10 Detroit houses don't equal one fucking Berkeley house. Okay. So just scratch all that bullshit, right? Try not to be an ass clown. Um, that would be helpful. Accurately represent what you're doing. But a blog would be great. A video series would be great. Somebody could do a live stream series. I think live stream, we're just beginning to see the beginning of what you can do with live stream. And you know, I'm exploiting it more and more. Why do you think I do these live streams? They fucking work, man. Every time I get more Facebook friends, I get more comments, I get more likes, I get more listeners on the podcast. People like it. Um, so I think they're just being known on social media, doing something. If you like Mark Tomes, he doesn't like to do video or audio. So he writes, um, I think video is the best because people don't read and people don't listen. I know it's funny from a guy doing a podcast, but I just really love podcasts. Um, video is the best post pictures, tell people what you're doing. Be my goal is at least, and I don't usually meet, meet these goals by trying to do three posts a day on social media where People can see what I'm doing. And I'm not like saying, hey, everybody, come give me money or hey, everybody, come check out. Just that I'm active. Just that I'm doing things in the marketplace. And I'm doing different and interesting things. And if I can take a good picture, I will. If it's, I try not to just Facebook Live business. I'm trying Facebook Live fun too, which is why sometimes I'll do some canning things that my wife and I, that Gina does. Um, so I did it when um, the Dealey group went out for the Detroit Cycle Pub, whatever. And I did some. Facebook there went flying um, last Friday with Josh, um, Josh Sterling, Tommy Desmond, Dylan Borland, David Tupin had a great time, did a live stream there, right? So just if it's interesting, don't just do business. You need to let people into your personal life because you want to, I also say you want to know who you're going to work with. If you you want to attract people that you're which is why I am the way I am. Some of it is done for effect. I am, I am like this, but I also do a certain percentage of it is done for effect to scare away ass clowns of people I don't want to um, work with. So start a blog, get a video series goon going, do a live chat. Um, David Gittens, guy I've been working with, I'm just really impressed with as well. Um, he does a, a Monday morning motivation video. I think that's great. Being known and he's chasing his dreams. He's letting people his dreams are. He's trying to help other people with his dreams. 
So I think that's a great way to be known in the marketplace. So network your ass off. Um, don't expect things for free and just be active and share that you're active. Get used to sharing social. We're just in the beginning, not just of the internet, by the way. I want you to think about how far cars have come since the, since the Model T, right? And everybody's like, oh, now we have cars. You think people in 1925 are like, oh, we have cars. What's next? They just had no idea where the car was going. Or 1950s TV. Oh, that's it for TV by 1960s. No, it's fucking bigger every single year. This internet thing is the same way. This social media thing is the same way. It is still groundbreaking. Now, it's not necessarily groundbreaking on every platform, but this is the beginning, the very beginning. So lots of opportunity for you to establish yourself and the marketplace. And that's one of the things I really agree with Grant Cardone on is be known in the marketplace, which is why I do all this shit. I want to be known in the marketplace. That makes sense. Uh, how can I come down one day when you're doing your wholesaling call training and hang out and watch for a while? Well, you can't watch. If you Okay, so Josh Smith, he is referring. Hey, my sister's on. How you doing? Hey, Jessica. Um, how can you come down one day when you're doing your wholesale and call training and hang out and watch for a while? So what he's referring to is on Thursdays and Fridays, I do uh, Thursday is round robin dialing. Uh, it's 4.30 to 7.30. If you're interested in doing this, um, PM me. Go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Jeremy or go to facebook.com forward slash renegade joint investors and um, send me a message and I'll add you to my RDI live wholesale calling group, right? And what is that? So on Thursdays, we do round robin and that's more of a training, right? I just train people and and some of these people get hired. Um, You bring your own leads. You're going to cold call or you're going to do your own mailings. You're going to do your own leads. And if you show up, you have to dial. It is not, you can't come and just watch. There's no watching. All right, uh, I will need some reference checks because you're going to be seeing some people's deals. I don't want any of this, you stole somebody's deal bullshit. So there's going to be some um, reference checks and you have to dial. And on Thursdays, we do round robin. We do one call at a time and we all watch. And then we sit there and it's more of a training exercise, right? Where we're going through and we're doing all this. And it's like, okay. And I'll sometimes I'll tell you what to say. Like, hey. Ask this, ask that. I have a script I give out too. I'm like, okay, just follow the script and you cold call, right? So if that's something you're interested in, send me a PM. If you just want to watch it and hang out, that's why I do the live feed. I realized really quickly that a lot of people can't make it to all these things. A lot of people, at least at this point in time, even though they want to, they have families, they have to work. At least when I record on video and I share it with everybody, then at a time when it is convenient for them or maybe while they're stuck at work, riding away, right. Or doing whatever it is they have to do. They can watch it and they can get something out of it and they can start to learn. And maybe someday they can come out and do it, or maybe they can just go off and do it on their own. Right. So if you just want to watch, you can do that from home, Josh. Otherwise send me a PM and I'll add you to the group and I'll do some vetting on you and you have to come. You got to bring your own leads to dial, right? If you don't have any leads for sell by owner leads, we close on for sale by owner. I just closed a deal on a cold call from a for sale by owner lead. So it's not even some shit that doesn't work. I still do it. Don't get me wrong. It's better to have warmed up leads. I prefer direct mail and I get all my business from referrals. 
I don't do any direct mail. It's a 100% referral business plus some cold calling that I do just to prove to people that you can't still cold call because that's one of the, the, I call it an excuse, one of the excuses that I get about not being able to do something. <clears throat> okay, let's cold call. Get on Craigslist, get on some for sale by owner, get on Zillow and cold call, get some deals. So follow the script. Um, so if that's what you want to do, send me a PM and we will get you on. All right, what else we got here? When the local real estate market starts to decline, do you think Detroit will decline to or just slow down? That's from John Wilcox. Good dude. Closing lots of deals. We've done business together like John a lot. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. This is kind of like if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle kind of question. Nobody really knows what the market's going to do. Um, what John is referring to is currently in Metro Detroit, we are experiencing the hottest market since, I believe, 2005. So this is the hottest market in 10 or 11 years. In certain cities especially, like Ferndale, Royal Oak, um, Livonia, um, with really short days on market, like six, seven, eight, nine days on market. Uh, I just did the dealer group podcast this morning, and I was actually pleasantly surprised to see that Detroit days on market is only 26. I would consider that a normal market, 26 days on market. And that's the number of days a property sat on the MLS before they accepted an offer and closed, right? So when the real estate market starts to decline, do you think Detroit will decline too or just slow down? I think it'll do both. And let me explain what I mean. Certain areas have political agendas behind them and political money behind them, right? Let's take a look at what Dan Gilbert has done to downtown Detroit. I think we can say what Dan Gilbert has done to downtown Detroit. Now, I know he did it with a team, but he showed up with money. Something like 52 of the skyscrapers were vacant when he started buying. Now, I think only one is vacant. They called them dinosaurs. Um, They were vacant, so he just started buying, and then he had a company, and he made people move down, and he paid, too. He gave him credits. He gave him extra money to move to downtown. So that really, that's really what started it off, right? Now, when I say political, the Detroit Land Bank, not my favorite thing in the world, right? But um, depending on how you look at it, they're targeting particular areas, right? And they have partnerships with Home Depot, state of Michigan, throwing some money in. Um, there's lots of nonprofits and commerce boards and all sorts of Detroit. I was, I can't remember the D E G Detroit entrepreneurial something. Anyway, there's tons of these things throwing money and getting things redeveloped. Another good example of a government agenda is putting in the M one rail, the Woodward rail, right from downtown to Detroit up to eight mile, right? Whether you think it's a good idea or not, no doubt that everybody who already owned real estate along there really wanted it to happen. And people who didn't own real estate, immediately started buying real estate along the Woodward Corridor. I think whether the economy goes up or down, they're still going to put in the rail line. Now they're putting in the, uh, another example of political power is putting in the new Red Wing Stadium, right? So 
And I think Wayne State University keeps building and admission for Wayne State University keeps going up. So things like um, Woodbridge, Midtown, New Center, where there is all this political capital and will to improve it, I think that's going to continue to go up. Right. If you've been following the downtown Detroit condo market, in some instances you have condo selling for over 350 bucks a square foot. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, that's usually the first thing to get hit, but there's a ton of political will um, for all that shit. So now I think once you get to the edges, right, um, or somewhere in between, lots of markets are going to go down, right? So let's say if tomorrow, and I'm, I'm just, it's not going to happen, but let's say tomorrow the FBI arrested Mayor Duggan, right? That would have an effect on Detroit. What if they take down, I don't know, Maybe they need to go through second bankruptcy, right? So I think, I don't really know, but I think it'll do both. As for the suburbs and as a whole, one thing, one benefit to being an agent is I get to see the buy side. So there's still, for particular areas especially, a ton of demand, right? So they slowed down a little bit, got some buyer fatigue from the prices that kept going up and they're starting to kick back in and come back in as prices slow down more like a normal market. It's still pretty hot. So for example, Ferndale, I don't see a, a downturn in the economy turning around most of Ferndale. Like maybe it'll hurt the far East corner on the East side of Woodward. That's just now starting to be developed. Um, but in the, in the developed areas, People put a ton of money into it. They have a beautiful downtown. People love it. Um, Royal Oak School District, they love it. Birmingham, people fight tooth and nail to be there. There's a ton of demand. Um, so I think both, if I'm if I'm being honest. And if I'm being truly honest, I don't really know. We will see. But I think it's going to do all of the above, Mr. Wilcox. So let's see here. What is the next question? How can I come down? Hey, Scott, just checking in. Do we have any more questions? Meredith Wills, who's your favorite person in this whole wide world? That is a good question. I don't know. I did say ask me anything, didn't I? I would say my wife. Do we have any more questions? Going once. Do you have any more questions? Corporate break is over. All right. I think that's it. I don't see any more questions. Does anybody else on Facebook Live have any questions for me? What are we at? We're at uh, one hour and 18 minutes. Going once. Going twice. All right. Hold on. Let me check. Let me check the Renegade Detroit Investor page while I'm doing this. I know it's a little boring for you guys to listen to, so I'll do it fast. I just want to make sure I didn't miss any. Um, took the time to put in a question. I want to make sure that um, I answered it. Great answers. Thank you. One more quick check here. Yup. Hey, Chris, what's happening, man? No, nope, looks like I got it. Okay, so... That's not bad. 
So was an hour and 20 minutes was like five or six questions. I don't know. I'll see if that meets it. Um, we were doing this test case too, cause I have a pretty awesome guest I'd like to have on. And this was what he wanted to do. He wanted to do a live Facebook live and answer questions and record the podcast. Oh, did you help s- select someone to help you edit your podcast yet? Um, yes, Chris, actually I did two and I may need more. Because when I started this, I didn't I, I didn't know I was going to be doing a podcast every day of the week. I really didn't. So I'm going to have to do more, I think. We'll see how it goes. So, um, yes, I did. Um, I have two. I call them minions. But what do they call them? Minties? They probably don't appreciate being called minions. I don't know. I was a minion. I was Steve's minion for a long time. I'm okay with it. Right now, I'm Joe Delia's minion. And I'm David Brooks' minion. Just make sure that the person you're being a minion for is a go-getter, and it doesn't seem to matter to me. So, anyway. So, yes, Chris, I did. All right, folks. Well, if you don't have any more questions, again, I want to encourage you. So, part of the deal, it is a ton of work to drop a podcast every day of the week. So, what I want you to do is rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Minions is better. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. Yeah. I like minions. I'm a minion too, so I'm okay with that. Hey, Mr. Tupin, yo. 10-4, yeah. Um, share the podcast, man. Rate and review on iTunes. Share the podcast every time if you like it. Um, again, I'm going to run through it again. We got on Mondays, every Monday, we're going to drop the Borland Group Real Deals, Real Returns. That's every Monday, and that's with uh, Dylan Borland and David Tupin. We just signed on. That's BoilingGroupLLC.com. Every Tuesdays, flip this podcast with Steve Lundo. Fucking great new format. Love the podcast. Did the first two. Released the first one yesterday. Really glad to be a part of it. Really glad Steve's back. Great information. Probably one of my favorites, although I like them all. Wednesdays, my this is an off week, right? But Wednesdays is more my interview style where I really dive into the story of life of somebody, a business owner or a real estate investor. Thursday story time with Jeff. That's Jeff Venowitz. He has a blog on uh, bigger pockets called Confessions of a Private Lender. And that's a podcast where he sits down and he introduces a special guest, which is always a bourbon, a whiskey, or a scotch. He knows more of that shit than I do. And then he tells a story about a deal he did um, or something like we did uh, Fail the Plan. That's that's one coming where it's um, Eagle Rare and Fail the Plan. Some good stuff. Then on Fridays is going to be the Commercial Real Estate Investment Podcast. That's with David Brooks. He is our um, lead Keller Williams agent here in Royal Oak and Keller Williams Commercial. He's got tons of experience. He's also an auctioneer. And it's going to be called Detroit. Wait a second. What are we calling that again? Detroit Real Estate Advisors. And the first one we're doing is this Friday. And... Love the story time with Jeff. Going to check out the other ones today. Yeah, the story time with Jeff is great. Make sure, Josh, to tell Jeff because he's really worried that people don't listen. So even though I show him the numbers and I tell him, make sure to let him know because it's a lot of work for him to do it because he has a really bad stutter and he's got to fight through and he's, he worries a lot about how he sounds. I think he tells great stories. That's why I'm doing the podcast with him. So encourage him if you have a moment. Send him a message on Facebook. Don't text him. Jesus Christ, don't check. Don't text him. But Send him a message and, and thank him for that and let him know. And then so then Fridays will be Detroit Real Estate Advisors, and we're going to work the Woodward Corridor. 
and we're going to meet with local business owners. We're going to embed ourselves in the Woodward Corridor in Detroit and do a podcast live from live businesses, introduce the the owner, talk about some real estate, some commercial real estate deals, um, things like that. So, um, yeah, check that out and share the ones you like. So, all right, that's it for this week, folks. Um, if you haven't already, go to renegadetroit.com. If you want to, if you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club or meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors. You can hit me up personally um, on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. Go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right. And for everybody who's already rated this podcast or reviewed it on iTunes, I know there's a couple of you do it every day. That's awesome, folks. Thank you. I need to start um, thanking you all individually, too. It's going to take some time, but I really do appreciate it. And that's how we're going to grow this podcast. So everybody's sharing, too. Mark Tomes, um, Steve Lundo, Jeff Lipple. There's a ton of you on there, and I, I try and go through every time and like every single one of them. David Tupin, Dylan Borland. There's a ton of you sharing stuff, and I really do appreciate it. It really does help. And if you create content, I will share it to the Renegade Detroit Investor page too, so long as it's not just a big, long sales pitch. So if you're creating great content for investors that you think investors would like, send it to me. And if I don't like it, I'll start sharing it to the page too, because that's what we're trying to do here is create as much content for investors as possible. All right. So as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know it's election time too. Do you really think any of these ass clowns are going to take care of you? Really? Do you, have you met a government employee? You might be a government employee. In fact, you might be a great one. Turn around, turn your head around. Look, are you sitting next to any great government employees? Do you think these people should really be in charge of your retirement? Your medical insurance, man, if you think so, you're fucking moron. And, um, I hate to see you're going to lose all your shit, but that's, what's going to happen. Let me tell you what, if you take care of your shit, it's not going to happen. I know there's distractions, mistakes, bad starts in life. I didn't get the best start in life. Lost everything twice. Sometimes it sucks. Bad habits too, right? I was surrounded by some bad people. It's hard to do the right thing when you're surrounded by bad people, right? But don't give up. Pick some goals. Stick with it. Do something every day, or as we say in Detroit, every day to get you closer, even if it's one step. And I know it's like. I laid on the couch and got fat for six months, all right? So don't give me any of your shit. I have a pretty good idea of what the bottom is like, and it still wasn't an excuse to do anything. Get up and do some stuff, all right? I want to thank you for listening. I know you could be doing lots of things right now. And until the next podcast, crush it.